Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. This week's presenting sponsor is Panhandle Plains Historical Museum and Canyon. It's the largest history museum in Texas and one of the hidden gems of this area. If you're interested in local history, from the ranchers and pioneers who first settled the area to the American Indians who lived here long before that, you can learn so much from the artifacts and collections at PPHM. Learn more at panhandleplains.org. This week's guest is Giacomo Byros, the music director for the Amarillo Symphony. Now, my usual preference is to interview people who live in Amarillo, but I made an exception for Giacomo. He's actually based in Miami and spends most of his time traveling to appear with symphonies around the world. But he is in Amarillo for several weeks out of the year during the symphony season. And he's super engaged with the local arts and music communities during those times. As Giacomo explains, his career has grown enormously since he was a young upstart conductor, first hired by the symphony back in 2013. Since then, he's co-founded the critically acclaimed New Deco Ensemble, He's collaborated with artists like Ben Folds and Aaron Deal, and he's guest conducted as far away as Singapore just a couple of months ago. I'm honored that he carved out some time to do this podcast. So here's Giacomo Byros. Giacomo Byros, welcome to the Hamarillo Podcast. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Well, uh, obviously, I want to talk about the symphony and I want to talk about your role as a conductor. But before we get to that point, I like to sort of establish, you know, how you ended up in this area. I know you're not from Amarillo. I know you're not in Amarillo, you know, every day of the year. So so tell me a little bit of your story before you connected to the city. Well, um, I had a career as a professional tuba player for many years, and my final position was as principal tuba of the Singapore Symphony Orchestra. And while I was there, I started to get really active with the orchestra, with the administration on just doing things to kind of help promote the orchestra outside of my role as a tuba player. I was running the chamber music series, programming the chamber music series. I started a little community orchestra. I was writing scripts for the conductors who were coming in to do different types of shows. I just got my hands really involved in a lot of the other aspects beside performing. And I found that uh, I had this sort of itch that I've been wanting to scratch as a conductor. Um, long story short, the orchestra did give me an opportunity to conduct a big pops concert there. Uh, 12, 13 years ago now, actually, wow. And um, I just really enjoyed it and felt like it was something I could do. And I took the plunge and risk and left the orchestra to go study conducting. And as I was doing that, within the first couple seasons of, of going back to school and studying conducting, I, I knew this is what I was meant to do and I wanted to do it and I was gonna really go for it. I started applying for some positions and I was uh, accepted as the associate conductor of the Charlotte Symphony and while I was there, um, I saw the opportunity to apply for this position that opened up. And, you know, at the time, to be very honest, I had only been conducting for a few seasons, and it was quite surprising that the Amarillo Symphony took some interest in me and my application. And uh, I think they were impressed with my materials at the time that I had, and, and they decided to give me a conversation. And as soon as we talked to the committee and we all talked and met, I just fell in love with them. I, they, they were so warm and generous and open and and I felt this very odd, quick connection. And while my resume wasn't as long as some of the others at the time, you know, their profile was looking for someone who was up and coming, someone who could kind of reinvent, uh, reinvigorate the symphony a little bit and provide some new ideas, some fresh ideas. And that was at the time what I was going for was to give an orchestra a boost. I wanted to find a place where not only artistically I could grow and help them grow, but somewhere I could really try out some of my ideas that I felt um, 
uh, a symphony orchestra should be doing to be more relevant and compelling for its community. And it just seemed like a really good fit. Did you have like any inkling about Amarillo or this area before that? I mean, had you been in this area at all? Did I mean to be did honest? You know where it was? I mean, I don't think I did. I didn't really know that much. Uh, you know, I. Uh, I think I drove through here on my way back from Aspen when I was younger, in my younger days of driving to that festival. But the reality was I did not know much, honestly, and I didn't know much about the panhandle. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Homestead, Florida, which remarkably has a lot of uh, parallels to this area. It's very open, wide open space. You know, the skies are huge and big and blue like they are here. Uh, it's a small community, a small town. Um, people knew each other. And that was something that I felt very connected to with this community was how everyone uh, really knows each other and takes care of each other and has each other's back and, and supports each other and supports each other through art and music and culture. And it was something I really loved and it was something that reminded me of home. Yeah, that's, that's one of the things that I like to talk with my guests about is especially those that did not grow up here or that came here later in life. You mm. know, the perspective of what you thought before coming here and then what the reality was right you know, challenging some of those misconceptions I mean what well, what did you what did you learn about Amarillo once you started digging into this well I have to say even when I first got here I don't think I really got to see the real Amarillo I, always, I mean it's not great when you're flying in <laughs> and you just see you know a lot yeah of, you see all the big uh, pastures and the and the crop circles and that was cool and you actually see Paladuro Canyon uh, as you're flying in if you're on the left side of the plane which I I always love and always try to sit over there but I have to say, when I first got here, I did think of my, I thought this, oh my goodness, what is this town? It was a little bit, um, you know, the downtown area seemed a little bit empty at night. And I remember one of the first nights I was here taking one of my audition weeks, I saw a group of uh, gentlemen on horseback going down the main road, pulling up to the bar, tying up their horses and going into the bar and having a drink. I was like, okay, it's, yeah. this is where I'm at. I guess at. that's what happens here. <laughs> but, um, but as I got to know the community, it was really the people and the people and the love that the people have for their community and creating a community that is worthy of any other city to live in many of the people who live here and are supporters of art and culture here are people who chose to live here because they loved it and they love raising a family here and having a family here and they love the area and they're business people of course and they've done very well for themselves but they didn't want to live in a city that did not have art and culture and i was so impressed by how they banded together to build the concert hall, the Globe News Center for the Performing Arts. I was so impressed that there was an opera company, a ballet company, a symphony orchestra that had a rich and long and storied tradition. Um, there was many uh, uh, reflections about the area, the museums, just the school, the WT, the AC. I just felt like, wow, for such a small area or I, you can call it out of the way or not call it out of the way. We are in the panhandle and it takes a while to get here. But for this community to have built itself up the way it did, I was so impressed with that. And I thought, wow, what an exciting opportunity to to come in and help nurture that that art and culture that they love so much, that they want so much, and that they're accepting of so much to, to, to be a part of that I thought was really exciting. I want to dig in a little bit to your role as a conductor. Mm -hmm. um, you know, people, whether they attend or not, they know what the symphony is. Mm -hmm. They've seen a large group of instruments and, you know, somebody waving around a baton mm -hmm. um, as they make music, but may not really know what's involved with right. that. And I know it's more than just waving your arms around. A lot so more. talk to me a little bit about, you know, maybe what we don't understand about what you're doing, what it means to take a, a piece of music and to really you know, create it using all these different people, all these different instruments. Right. Yes. There are a lot of components to being a music director, 
a conductor, a guest conductor. There's so many different variables that come with each role. You know, as a guest conductor, you usually work with the artistic administrator of that orchestra program or program, come in and do it and, and go home. And that's probably the least amount of overall big picture work. And that's what, like a, a one or two Yeah, like if I were going to go, exactly. If I were going to go in a guest conduct, you know, for example, I guest conducted the San Francisco Symphony earlier this year and, you know, it was a Day of the Dead concert. So that was my theme. And I worked with the artistic planner to make a really compelling, fun program. And we organized the rehearsal order. I came in and conducted it and I went home and that was that. Music director is different. You know, uh, there's a lot of off-podium work that this community has probably not, you know, doesn't know all the layers that are involved. Um, they get to see the icing on the cake, which are the concerts, which mm -hmm. are fun, which are great, which are, are but 5% of the overall job and role. You know, you have to have a vision for the orchestra. You have to have an artistic vision. You also have to have a very responsible vision for how you're going to grow and continue to grow the organization because, you know, we all feel here at the symphony, if you're not growing, you're actually dying. You have to, like, grow the organization both financially. You have to really always are working on development. Um, and then the vision of the orchestra, what kinds of pieces do you want to play that are going to help the orchestra grow, learn, benefit from each other? What is going to bring people into the concert hall, fill the concert hall, send them home feeling satisfied? What... What kind of music is going to be compelling, transformative, relevant, uh, you know, all the different styles within that, classical, Baroque, Romantic, early classical, post, you know, Romantic, uh, new music, contemporary music, modern music. It just, it, the list goes on and on of all the factors that are involved with programming. So, you know, the off-podium work is, is quite intensive as a music director because you are charged with upholding not only a certain standard of artistic integrity, but you are charged with taking the orchestra into the future, which I, which I value very much and which I appreciate very much. And I always say that we're just the caretakers of the institution. You know, I'm going to be here for however long my tenure is, um, but the orchestra is going to go on way past me, and it has been going on well before me. We're in our 93rd season, I believe, and uh, that's an amazing feat and a testament to the community and a testament to this area for supporting not only art and culture, but also their love of symphonic music. So I need to and want to nurture that love further, but also take the organization into the future by providing them things that are relevant, compelling, that speak to society today, that get them excited about the symphony so that when my tenure does end, that I leave this place in great shape so that the next music director can kind of build off that foundation and they can take it another step forward. Tell me about some of the challenges of that, because I, I know that just as a, as a community, as a culture, Amarillo is pretty conservative. Um, Patrons of the symphony are probably going to be older, uh, maybe more traditionalist uh, in, in terms of their love of music and, and the type that they like. How do you nurture, you know, that support mechanism while also trying to grow a younger base? How do you, I mean, how slowly do you have to introduce some of those newer types of music or yeah. more challenging forms of music? I think it probably took me about a good season or two to find my footing here with that. Um, I did come in like gangbusters the first season and did all this wild, crazy. I'm going to shake things up. And yeah. And, you know, I think there were some people who were on board with it and there were some people who were not. And the feedback I received was a little bit mixed. I think in general, people were happy with my energy and my dedication and my my professionalism and the artistry that we were creating on stage. But we did receive a lot of feedback about, well, I don't know about this program and that program because within the context of who I was and what we were building, it didn't make much sense. So I took a step back and kind of reshuffled and reframed how I wanted to approach building 
new audiences, younger audiences, more diverse audiences, while at the same time making sure that people who love the symphony and have loved the symphony feel nourished and feel like they're getting um, the best of what the symphony can offer for them. And it, it was it was compromise. I had to find where are the places and programs I can push a little, where are the places and programs I can satisfy, where are the places in the programs that will allow me to create an opportunity to present something new and fresh versus something you know very familiar and recognizable. And so um, I feel like we hit our stride about my second or third season here in that. Um, we brought in Chris Rogerson as a uh, uh, composer in residence, and he helped as well with the programming because he was so smart and brilliant to to kind of shore up what would make a entire program very holistic in terms of finish to end, uh, what kind of soloists and, and, and pieces that would be interesting and relevant, but at the same time satisfy all those goals of freshness, newness, but also sticking to the core of the classics that you know, people really love. And what, you know, a symphony, a symphony orchestra is part legacy institution, part contemporary art museum, part educator, part uh, instigator of art. I mean, there's so many different things a symphony orchestra can be um, to its community, but the most important thing for me is that it's relevant for its community. And I think to me, relevance is both new and old, as well as, uh, a fresh take or a fresh spin or a fresh format on what we do. Um, and I, I feel like we're starting to hit that and I feel like the community understands it now and they really, you know, every time we announce a new season, they're all very excited to hear about what new pieces we're going to do, what new concert formats are we going to try out and what are the core classics they're going to hear. Um, and I'm finding that every year it gets easier and easier to program now because I have a really good sense of what, how far I can push the boundaries within the context of making sure everyone's really satisfied right. with their core repertoire. Tell me about the talent level in this area. Is that something that, uh, I, I don't have any idea how to compare it to, you know, other places. Um, you know, have, have you found that with WT and AC and, and even the high schools here, are, are they producing, oh, you yeah. know, symphony orchestra caliber players? Well, we did work with Tascosa High's choir on a, a, a Hollywood program I did a few years ago, they were as good as any professional choir I ever worked with. I could not believe it. Our youth orchestra program is growing leaps and bounds. We have such full rosters now. We, Our, our wonderful youth orchestra director, um, Guli Manfredi, has really just taken that up a big notch. Um, WT has been an incredible access point for us. We work with a lot of their students. And I, and I always trust our musicians and professors there to, to bring in the students that they feel would be up to the task because you have to have a certain level of professionalism to play with the Emerald Symphony. Whether you're a freshman at WT or a postgraduate, it, you have to uphold a certain standard of professionalism. And so anyone that comes in, they need to be held accountable to that. And the professors and teachers and performers of the orchestra, they do know that and they always provide uh, really great substitutes and, and backup players all the time. And so that's very exciting to have opportunities for those students to come in um, and, and perform with us. Uh, same with AC. Uh, you know, I, I think it's just been a really wonderful find to know that there's two major institutions providing and producing new students that are, are very into classical music, but also into like the change and the kind of new music I do and the kind of the programming I do, which is a little more on the progressive side. Um, so I think it's been good for a shakeup for, for the community. But the talent pool is great. There's always been a lot of wonderful teachers here, a lot of wonderful players, and a lot of wonderful um, 
musicians here. I think the challenge for us overall is having that be broad in every direction mm-hmm. because I think certain instruments um, are just harder than others to to fill out. And uh, you know, when we hold auditions, we don't really tell anybody they can or cannot come. And some people come from you know hundreds of miles away just to audition for the orchestra because they're looking for opportunities and they're really great musicians and. What do you say to someone who plays a great audition but lives really far away and they win? You you can't tell them they can't come. You know, right. it's it's it is what it is. And auditions are very democratic and fair. They're behind the screen. It's a committee, and whoever wins and stands at the end is is the person chosen. And of course, we're always hoping it's someone local, and sometimes it's not. So it just depends on the situation and the instrument. But overall, the talent pool here is great. There's a history of teaching here. There's a history of Suzuki teaching here. I think there's a, a, a wonderful base of, of local musicians that provide the core of who we are at an extremely high level. Speaking of, of the instruments, I, I want to hear how your uh, background playing the tuba influences <laughs> you as a, a music yeah. director or as a, a, a conductor. That's not something I, I don't think of the tuba as a leadership instrument, you mm. know. Uh, because it's in the background, or mm. if anybody sees it, it's because they see it at the in the marching band mm. or something. Um, so tell me what that gives you, what benefits that gives you in this position. You know, uh, or I, is it as rare as I think? I mean, is is that a rare? I don't know for? of any professional former tuba players who are having a career out there. Like, I just personally don't know them. I'm sure there's one or two that exist. Well, I don't know be. anything, so I, maybe I'm just making an assumption. No, I, I mean, I'm pretty sure there's got to be another tuba player conductor out there out there doing great work. Uh, I feel there's got to be. But just for, for me personally, I, I didn't really play any other instruments, so it's hard for me to compare with others. But I know that I always actually looked at the tuba as a leadership instrument. You know, I always believed that the fundamental of an orchestra in terms of its sound quality, its intonation, and its rhythmic integrity came from the bottom up. Basses, timpani, contrabassoon, tuba, uh, celli, you know, all these low, sort of growly, strong instruments is how you build chords. Chords sit on top of that. Harmonies sit on top of the root. The root of the note of the chord is the base in which harmonies, rhythm, and, and sound are built upon. So if you have a bass section that's huge with a big sound that plays incredibly in tune, celli, violas, violins, everybody else is just going to sit on that and float. Same with tuba. Now, at the same time, the hardest instruments to get to be moving forward and be pushing forward are the low instruments because sonically, and this is just physics, low sounds, you have to drive them for them to sound more on top of the beat. It's just the way it is. So as a tuba player, when I performed, I was always leading. I always felt like I was on top of the beat, leading the orchestra and driving the orchestra because from the top down, people are listening for that fundamental root to be pushed both in intonation, which is the pitch and harmony, as well as rhythmic drive. So I actually looked at it as a leadership role and it felt very natural to go up to the front because I took that rhythmic integrity and that sound quality that was in my head that was built from the low end and applied it to the orchestra and the rehearsals and that's that's what I've tried to do here and I've changed my opinion a lot as I've conducted more and grown more as an artist of course but at the end of the day a chord is built from the bottom not from the top in my opinion and I think that has really helped me to define and create a sound not only here but with other orchestras as well. Okay, tell me, you know, when when you as the music director, you've um, you've chosen some pieces of music for uh, a performance, uh, maybe a familiar one. It's a Beethoven or something. 
and you know it, the audience knows it, the performers know it. What role are you playing as a conductor to make all that happen mm. and, and the energy that you have to provide? Mm. Because you can't really change a lot, but an orchestra conducted by one person, like say by you, might sound a little bit different from oh, totally. one conducted by another yes. uh, leader in that position. So tell me what's happening there and, and how that works. Yeah, I think that an orchestra takes on the personality of its leadership. And you're totally right in saying that one person creates one sound, another person creates another, and how do they do that? I've seen incredible conductors conduct incredible orchestras, and the orchestra ends up sounding like the person on the podium. I don't even know how to really define that any better than that. I've seen it time and time again with major conductors. Um, so from that point, I think the conductor's role is is almost like an architect, you know, the or, or maybe even an engineer in some ways. Like the architecture is in the score. This is Beethoven wants it fast here, wants it slower here, wants it softer here, wants it louder here. And then it's my job or the conductor's job to kind of look at that score, dissect that score, make it personal to that you and my or me, and, and then kind of redefine that to the symphony orchestra. Now, there's certain regulations, you know. I mean, if Beethoven says he wants something at a certain tempo, you should probably stick within right. range of that tempo, even if you feel like it's something should be faster or not faster. But at the end of the day, your personality, your relationship with the music, your history as a human. I mean, we've all gone through so many different life obstacles and challenges and ups and downs and roller coasters, losses and gains and loves. And those things affect who you are as a human and also your relationship to the world. Are you in a good place in your life or you're in a bad place in your life, these all really affect how you make music and how you treat people when you're conducting. And I think that has been my biggest growth moment here is over the last six years, I've changed tremendously as a person, both inwardly and outwardly. And that has affected my music making, I believe for the positive, so that people are more um, able to come on the journey that I wish to create for each concert. And that's basically it. You're taking the audience on a journey, the musicians are on a journey, you're on your own personal journey as well. And then I think if it's done with authenticity and if you're really speaking from your truth and, and, and believing in the music from deep down in your heart and sharing that belief with the musicians, it translates to really exceptional performances for the audience. I'd like to talk a little bit about just your personal calendar and, and what a year looks like for you. Because I know that, you know, despite this position here, you don't live here full time. Right. You know, you've got stuff happening in Miami. You're traveling all over the place. So tell me just what your personal life looks like in terms of how long are you here? You know, when right. the symphony is planning a performance, how long are you there? Yeah. And, and how does that work? Yeah, I think when they hired me, they did say that the profile of the person they were looking at was someone who's up and coming, who will get busy, who will be busier and will bring a lot of that knowledge, expertise and experience back to Amarillo. And likewise, I'll take my leadership growth here as a music director and bring it to other places. And I think that's been one of the greatest joys and rewards for me is, is having that sort of work out for all of us. When I first started here, I wasn't as busy as I was now. That is for sure, 100%. This was my main gig, and um, I had a lot more time for study and preparation for these concerts than I, I do now, but I've had to adjust my life because the career has become a lot busier and more um, involved. I would say each year 
is a typical year until the next year and then it's a different year. You know, right. it's like nothing's really typical. I mean, this year I've had some really amazing opportunities. Um, I've debuted with the San Francisco Symphony. I debuted with the Fort Worth Symphony. Uh, I actually returned back to the Singapore Symphony this year. I'll be conducting the Boston Pops this summer as well and uh, returning to Atlanta. So a lot of really wonderful orchestras I have relationships with. I'm continuing those relationships and also breaking into some new realms. And then New Deco Ensemble, the group I started in Miami about four years ago has really, really taken off. Right. So that's starting to take up more and more and more of my time as well. And since that's like a pet project, it was my baby. I feel very connected to that as well. Um, so, you know, my role in Amarillo is is very diverse in that I have the music director hat I have to wear. I have the development hat I have to wear. I have the programming and vision hat I have to wear. I have the conducting aspect. I have the relationships aspect with not only the community, but with, with also the musicians. And so when I'm in town, it's a very intense week. Mm -hmm. So we do about seven concerts a year, big subscription concerts. We have our happy holiday pops and we do nutcrackers and we have education and we do a lot of different things throughout the year. I do not conduct everything, but I do conduct most of the big stage productions, which is about six or seven concerts a year. So between October and April, I'm here every month for a good seven days. And, you know, rehearsals are only at night in the days. I'm, I'm doing things like this, wonderful right. podcasts and, and meetings and you know, planning and programming and, and lots and lots of different things happening. And then I come in the summer and we get together, we do auditions, we do programming. I do some events throughout the year where I come back. I would say all in all, it's about 10 to 11 weeks where I'm in the area doing work for the symphony specifically. And then, you know, I'm constantly on the phone with John Whitaker, our operations director and Andrew Hay, our executive director and, you know, Laura Street and Adair Buckner, our board president and past president. You know, I'm on the phone, texting, calling, emailing with them, you know, almost every day about things, various things, trying to make sure I'm staying on top of everything and, um, you know, just kind of be being in the loop because, yes, I don't live here, but at the same time, this is my full time job. And uh, I always give what I need to give to, to try to make everything work as much as I can. But then there are weeks where I'm super busy and they understand that, too. You know, they have my calendar and. You know, they're getting what they asked for, which is someone who's building their career while he or she was here conducting. And so that's that's kind of where it's at. But it's been really busy. I won't lie. I just like two weeks ago I was in Singapore, a week ago I was in Miami, and now I'm here and then I'm going to California soon. It's just like a little bit all over the place. I know that uh you know, you've been here for uh six, seven years now mm -hmm. and you know, you've been up front that you're not gonna be here forever. You yeah. won't be conducting in Amarillo when you're sixty or seventy, I'm sure. Probably not. Um we'd be lucky if you were. But, <laughs> um tell me I mean tell me what sort of trajectory you hope for mm. for your career. I you know, that's kind of an evolving moving target for me a little bit. Um only in that I would say six, seven years ago when I started here it seemed pretty clear to me. But now with the way New Deco Ensemble Miami took off, there's there's another vibe going there, which which hits on several buttons that I really love, like creativity, innovation, entrepreneurship, education, innovation, you know, um, really, really thinking and tinkering with the idea of what an orchestra is meant to be for its community and how relevant an orchestra can be for its community. I think in Amarillo, there was a lot of things where they were very set in their ways, and that was very much appreciated, and that made the job easier to walk into. I think when in Miami you create something from scratch, you're, you 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 kind of look at every direction equally, and so 
there were avenues that I was able to traverse there that I couldn't traverse here. And there's also avenues here where I could traverse that I couldn't traverse there because of the relationships that are already here. So I'm kind of learning from both things. Um, but personally now, I mean, what really excites me is relationships and uh, just doing really great work with really fascinating people and really wonderful people. And to be honest, the higher you go up uh, the chain, and now I'm conducting, as I said, orchestras like San Fran, National Symphony, you know, Boston Pops, which is essentially the Boston Symphony this summer, um, or the musicians from the Boston Symphony. It's I'm growing at more exponential rates working with these top tier, top level orchestras. Um, and that's really exciting for me. It's kind of giving me, it's like, it's like feeding me and like now I'm wanting more of it. So mm -hmm. I think if I were to have my druthers, I would be working with, you know, top 10, top 15 or, I mean, I love orchestras. It doesn't matter the, the, the category they're in. I love working with people and love putting on exciting concerts. I mean, I'm working with, you know, Winston-Salem Symphony this summer, and that's a pretty small budgeted orchestra comparatively to like a Boston, but it's still excellent musicians and who all love to play and be a part of music. So that part of it's great, but it's something very exciting about working with these top, top orchestras. I mean, when I conducted the San Francisco Symphony, it was like driving a Ferrari. Hmm. You just stick the key in and touch the accelerator and just boom, it takes off. And so that energy that I'm learning and picking up on from working with those orchestras is driving me and I'm bringing that back to Amarillo, which is exciting, but I'm also now craving that more. So I think the next step for me personally is to see, is to take new deco as far as it can go, try to broaden out the guest conducting a little more even. Um, and then whatever next music director job comes my way, I'm not out there like beating the doors down looking for it. I'm kind of letting the universe and fate and the divine sort of give me what is needed at the time and I'm I'm more spiritual in in my way of thinking about how it all is going to develop and I feel like the right thing is going to come and fall on my lap at the right time when it's meant to and there's some orchestras that are very interested in me as their next music director they're a couple of years down the road which seems kind of perfect timing because then I'll be you know thinking about for myself what is next and you know whatever step i do make um with the next music director job uh will hopefully be a job where i can come in like i did here at a certain level raise the awareness and profile of that orchestra in their community as well as grow as an artist myself so it's kind of like three layers there's the new echo side there's the guest, guest conducting side and then there's the next music director job this week's episode is sponsored by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum, located in Canyon on the campus of West Texas A&M University. Now, I'm a big fan of this museum. It's the largest history museum in Texas. And one of the things I'm trying to do with this podcast is create a record of life here in Amarillo and Canyon during this moment in time. Well, Panhandle Plains has been doing exactly that since it started in 1921. But what you may not know is that the museum is a nonprofit. The university helps with things like insurance and building maintenance, but it's primarily funded by membership and donations and visitor fees. People ask me, what's the best way to support the museum? Well, that, the answer to that is really simple. Go visit. Go check out its new exhibits and, and look at its permanent collection. Panhandle Plains is open year-round, five days a week through May, and then seven days a week in the summer with closures on just a few holidays. Admission is $12.50 for adults Tuesday through Saturday. Learn more at panhandleplains.org or on their Facebook page.
Okay, I'm back with Giacomo Byros of the Amarillo Symphony. Giacomo, this is a part of the show I call Eight Straight. Mm. I'm going to ask you eight straight questions. Your job as my guest is to answer those in as much detail as you want to. Um, so to start, I've, I've got one that's specifically for you. I, I haven't asked this of anybody else, but what's your favorite piece of music to direct? I don't know if Ooh. you know conductors have a, a favorite artist, a favorite symphony. I mean... Well, I love the way you asked the question because I often get ta- asked, what is your favorite composer or what is your favorite piece? And to me, that's like asking, what's your favorite food or what's your favorite dish? It's really hard. There's so many wonderful flavors in the world out there. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad you asked, what's your favorite piece of music to direct? Because that makes it a lot simpler. I love, to be very frankly and honest, I love music that's busy. I love conducting, and that generally falls into the line of new music. Um, I love music that's very complicated and complex, not in the way it sounds, but to direct. Um, so not necessarily like a Flight of the Bumblebee that no, I think of as a busy you know, no, sort of piece. No, no, that's a noty kind of okay. piece, a lot of notes. So I'm talking what does about busy mean? Busy means like multimeters, things that are changing. Maybe there's a, a vocalist, maybe there's a, a soloist, something that's very collaborative, something that's very... Um, fast and technical. I think those kinds of things are just kind of fun to conduct. I love really, I love the physical part of it a bit. Um, so that tends to fall in line with like new music kind of pieces. But honestly, it's funny you're asking me this question on this week. Copeland's Third Symphony mm. is on the program, which I, I believe we've already played since this podcast has come out. But, you know, as we are preparing for this piece, it's so huge and massive and gargantuan and just enormous. And so being able to take care of that energy and that sound and all these people playing all these notes and sort of contain it in a way that's very holistic for the audience that's been really fun and to direct. So I, it, it, you know, the cliche is, oh, my favorite piece of music is what I'm conducting right now. Well, actually, one of my favorite pieces to conduct is the one I'm doing now, the Copeland's Third Symphony, and I've never conducted it before. It's okay. a big, major work. So I think that's been really, really exciting for me. This is, this is another question. I don't know if you'll answer it or not. Um, <laughs> but from the audience's perspective, what do you think is the most underrated instrument in the symphony? I mean, you've talked about the tuba and the 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 bass heavy instruments, but yeah, I would ha- I would continue that thread and say it's funny you say underrated because I think there's a lot of instruments that are 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 like kind of like the B instruments, right? You mm-hmm. think of orchestra, you think oh, violin, cello, French horn, trumpet, flute. You know, these are kind of what are the top of the mind, but I love the little, I love the underdog. I love the bass. I love the contrabassoon. I love the bass clarinets. I love the timpani. I love mm-hmm. the tuba, of course. Um, I love, you know, the, the bass drum. I love the lower end instruments that are kind of fringy, you know, and I think they're, they create really cool and unique sounds. And yes, my ear does tend to go to the lower guys. But at the end of the day, those instruments are really just really cool to me. And the contrabassoon is like just one of the coolest looking things. It has three wraparounds and a funny belt. Yeah, and you you can really honk on it and play really loud and buzzy and just kind of nasty. And and the double bass has those low octave strings where you can kind of open up uh, and play like like a third lower than the actual note and get down to like a pedal C. And some bass players can go even down to a pedal B. And it's just like it's just like monstrous like movie sort of Howard Shore Strauss John Williams sound that you can make that's like really cool and 
Um, and they're yeah. the kinds that the audience members probably don't pay a lot of attention yeah, to. But they if they weren't there, like it would not oh, sound right. For so. sure. I mean, that's exactly it. it you know, a, a violin, you're going to hear, you're going to see them playing, and you're also going to hear it's a very specific timbre that just jumps over the orchestra. You may not know sometimes if a timpani's rolling or if a bass is playing a soft note or something like this. You just may not know it because it's within the context of the of the sound world that the piece is creating and sometimes it's just hard to pick that out but you're right if it's not there the sound will be different and won't have that same effect so those fringe instruments are the ones that i i love and i think don't always get their due <laughs> so um you know amarello is is always a part of your bio when mm. you're guest conducting yes. somewhere if you have a conversation with somebody in another place how do you describe amarello to people that don't know this area well, I, I tell them it's the panhandle, and then they usually still don't know because they think Florida panhandle, which is different than this panhandle. Uh, and then I tell them wide open spaces. I, I tell them it's, you know, land and cattle are, are sort of the, are, are some of the big drivers in energy, of course. But then I just really sink down into the people, you know, and, and how great the people are here and how friendly the people are here and how nice everyone is and the, the, the quality of of community here is so high and so wonderful that 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 you would miss that unless someone explained it to you you know you would just you have certain mental uh versions of what of town is you hear of a certain small town like mobile alabama or or i don't know you you think of something like waco texas you have these things in your mind of past historical events or whatever and you think of that town in a certain way amarillo i think has been sort of cleared of a lot of that and and there's obviously the song Amarillo by Morning but overall I don't think people know how amazingly beautiful the area is as well as how the people are very community driven and focused and and really out to 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 help each other. What does this area have too much of? <laughs> very hard question to a to answer because um I I really don't have a sense that there's too much of any one thing but there's I, I, I will say there's too much given to the idea that weather is such a big deal here. <laughs> okay. Like a lot I'll of explain people. Explain that a little bit. So, you know, we all know that Amarillo on Monday will be 80 degrees. On Tuesday could be 20 degrees. And then on Wednesday it will be 60 and beautiful. And then back again it will be freezing on Thursday. And then, you know, the sun will come out Friday afternoon. And and it's fun to talk about and it's great. But what I what bums me out sometimes is like a little bit of talk of the weather will 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 get people into a frenzy or a panic and maybe they won't come to a show. Okay. When really it's not that bad, you know. I just think it takes a little while to get used to, and like I I understand we have certain patrons that want to stay safe and not be out in the roads late at night with icy and stuff like that. But uh, we've had a couple times where we got caught in some you know tricky weather that uh, ended up putting a damper on on the performances and I felt bad because by the time the performance actually rolled around the weather had changed back right, again right. and it was fine and they you just could they just heard in the morning and exactly it. and so there's a little too much worry given to okay. what the weather's going to be like but you know we all got to be safe and you know I can understand that but You're uh, you're a Florida guy. Do you yeah. like the diverse weather here or do you prefer, you know, 70 I mean, and sunny every day like like it is right there? You know it's, it's hard to pull the Florida boy out of Florida. There's definitely, I, I was raised there, and so um, that is my 
most comfortable feeling place to live in terms of weather. I won't lie. But I do love coming into cold environments knowing that I'm going to eventually leave again. Okay. That makes <laughs> I think sense. Living in a cold environment, it'd have to take a really special, amazing kind of wild opportunity for me to to do that, which I would be, of course, open and willing to do because that's the nature of the game and you will, I will have to move at some point. But end of the day, like if I could make it draw draw it out I, w- I would come and visit the cold uh, a few times a year but still get back home to florida's beautiful sunshine okay <laughs> all right so let's go the opposite direction what does this area not have enough of mm. beautiful sunshine florida weather you know what this is going to be a really simple silly thing but there's not enough late night food spots okay and by late night i mean anything after 9 p.m you know uh we get out of rehearsals at the earliest at 9.30, usually around 10. And there's maybe one or two places um, open that serve quality, good meals that I can catch somewhere between like 10.30 and 11 when I'm able to finally get to a restaurant. Now, of course, on a Monday night, it's to be expected. I mean, even in Miami, it's kind of hard to find the late night food spot at that time of night. But I just wish some of the restaurants would would invest a little bit more into the idea that, you know, sometimes sometimes people just get out late and it takes them a while because it hinders their their night out. For example, if someone wants to come to the symphony and they want to come on a Friday night, and let's say our symphony goes till ten, they've got to scramble really hard to right. find a place to go and get somewhere enough time to where the kitchen isn't closed. Because even on Fridays and Saturdays, most kitchens close at ten. So anyone who comes is either going to have to go home to eat or eat before, but then be hungry after. So it's you know, I just wish there was like, I wish restaurants would serve food till 11, 12 o'clock at night. I know it's obviously every restaurant has, is the business and, you know, you have to take care of your business and your cooks want to go home early and you're not, you know, you're only serving maybe five, 10 people. Okay, I get it. It's a business decision. But I think if we all collectively came together and said, hey, Friday and Saturday nights, we want downtown to be hopping and happening and we want people to be able to get food, then they should, you know, think about opening up till at least 11 and then that gives people time from the symphony 9 45 to drive over downtown a couple blocks away park the car comfortably walk to a restaurant sit down and not feel like they're in a rush to have to get right, out of yeah. town okay that makes sense mm-hmm. because there's such great food here so many great restaurants there's so many great things happening there's a lot of new restaurants downtown they're all fabulous so many good things new pizza place yada yada a lot of stuff but i mean just wish it was a little later okay. you know what's your favorite local coffee shop well Patrick Burns is my buddy over there at uh, Palace Coffee. Recent guest on this podcast. Yes, I heard about that. Um, Patrick's a great guy, great community guy. I I feel that he makes coffee for this town, not just to own a coffee shop and and make money. He does it to provide this community something really exceptional and special in the coffee department. And, you know, it's really taken off. He provides something really amazing here in town and, and people love it. And he's a family man. He's you know, and he's got great kids and a beautiful wife. She's wonderful, and I think uh, they they're just a really great testament to to business and entrepreneurship and and community based business. And I I I love to support him not only as a person, family man, business leader, but also as just a, a community member, like a really strong and. Um, powerful sort of voice in the community for all the things that are great here and and therefore it's a pleasure to support his coffee shop because not only am i supporting him and what he's doing but i'm supporting really great coffee they like provide a really great cup of coffee and no matter how you slice it 
All right, and I, I suspect I know the direction this answer will go, <laughs> but I'm going to ask the question anyway. When was the last time you went to the Big Texan? Oh, I've never made it there. Never at all. I haven't because I'm a, I don't eat meat, and I, it's so funny. When I first started the job here, I had just stopped eating meat. So um, I never did make it to the Big Texan. I, I've had a meet several times since I've been out here, maybe at a, a, a nice donor function, a symphony function, where we, we get some really catered uh, stuff that, you know, if, if my, our patrons and our audience members and our donors say, hey, Giacomo, man, you got to try this piece of meat. I'll try it. I'm not against meat per se. I just, I don't eat it. So the Big Texan never really appealed. Well, I talk about it a lot. Yeah, I always, I mean, it, I always, it's a place always that tell people got to go there. Locals don't necessarily eat there but <laughs> everyone from outside Amarillo who comes here ends up yeah. eating there I, don't so th- I thought you might kind of be in the middle of that yeah I check it out or I something. know I think probably before my tenure is up I'm gonna have to swing by there maybe I'll get a bunch They've of sides got dessert, yeah salad. go with some friends who eat meat and just watch and see if they can do it and then um, maybe get some sides and dessert as you said Okay, well, that concludes uh, the eight straight questions. Uh, Giacomo, I'd like to end by asking my guests to endorse something related to the area. Ooh. So what's something locally that you you think listeners should know about or experience? Well, gosh, there's so many wonderful things. I don't think people appreciate Route 66 enough. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so many great restaurants and small businesses over there that I think are really, really cool. Um, obviously, you know, I want to put a plug in for the remainder of our season. Of course, yeah. you know, we have an amazing Wild Wild West program in March and then we're doing Beethoven 9 in April to close out the season. But ultimately, I'm a nature guy and I love the outdoors and I've got to say one of the most magnificent places to be um, and a place that I go to multiple times a season when I'm here and, and find a lot of solace and, and just beauty and peace there is the Palo Duro Canyon. Okay. I think that's one of the most treasured places in all of America. I think it's just this unbelievable place that that's at the doorstep of everybody here in canyon and amarillo and i cannot encourage people enough to just spend a lot of time there soaking up nature soaking up the environment soaking up the area so that you know they can nurture themselves i mean nothing like nature to nurture our souls and 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 ourselves is you know like music same thing and i think music and nature are very connected and being out there is just uh, just so refreshing to me and and I always feel so much better and, and, and hiking down there and just being a part of it is you can almost lose yourself down there. I think it's, it's great for us to get out and be outdoors, but the fact that that specific place is in our backyard is, is a real treasure and just want to encourage people to go and support it. Giacomo Byros, thanks for being on the podcast. I Thank appreciate it. Thank you so it. much, Jason. Really fun to be here. Thank you. And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks to Panhandle Plains for the sponsorship and especially to Giacomo for giving me some time during one of his busy weeks in Amarillo to do this interview. You can follow this podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at Hey Amarillo Podcast. Uh, On Instagram, I always post photos that I take during these interviews if you want to see what the guest looks like. Also, please leave a review if you want to on uh, Apple Podcasts is the best place to do it. If you like the show, if you have comments about it, if you think something should be better, let me know. Leave a review. Executive producers of Hey Amarillo include Josh Wood, Patrick Burns, Jennifer Callahan, Corey Burns, Daniel Davis, Wilson Lemieux, Katie Linger, Neil Nossiman, Ryan Pennington, and Wes Reeves. You can help produce the show, too, by visiting patreon.com slash heyamarillo. That's Patreon with an E. Thanks for listening. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.